This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on acute pancreatitis. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Acute pancreatitis is a common and serious condition. The incidence in the UK is about 50 per 100,000 per year, and it can cause a range of complications, including acute renal failure, pancreatic abscess, and of course, chronic pancreatitis. So it's important that we get the diagnosis and management of this condition right. To give us more details about this problem and what we can do about it, we have on the line Professor Scott Tenner, Clinical Professor of Medicine, State University of New York. And importantly, Scott is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Scott, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is acute pancreatitis? Uh, Acute pancreatitis um, is acute inflammation of the pancreas. Uh, Clinically, a patient um, is feeling well and then develops sudden onset of abdominal pain. Uh, This is quite different than chronic pancreatitis where a person has a long history of abdominal pain or relapsing pain. In acute pancreatitis, the pain begins rather rapidly. Within a few hours, progresses to the point that they need to be uh, seen in an emergency room or uh, certainly in a hospital setting. Okay, thank you. How do you make the diagnosis? The diagnosis of acute pancreatitis is established by two of three criteria. So you just have to have two of these three criteria. It's either pain consistent with the disease, which is severe epigastric pain, uh, and or a lipase or amylase greater than three times the upper limit of normal, uh, and or imaging such as a CT or MRI. Um, The diagnosis is typically easy to establish in patients who present with the classic sudden onset of abdominal pain and the amylase and lipase being over a thousand. Sometimes patients have abdominal pain for other reasons and the amylase and lipase are slightly elevated In these patients, uh, imaging would be needed to establish the diagnosis. You mentioned a number of investigations, including, I think, amylase and lipase, CT or MRI. uh, Are those the kind of the the core investigations that are are needed? Initially, to establish the diagnosis. Most patients actually don't need a CT scan or an MRI. Uh, Here in the United States, it's almost a routine, which is quite unfortunate. Most patients with acute pancreatitis have mild disease, and the diagnosis is easily established by uh, the presence of epigastric pain um, and an amylase and lipase or, that are over three times normal. So the CT and MRI is not needed. It's only in the patients who do not improve after, say, 24 to 48 hours. Okay, thank you. And what about if you have a patient whose amylase is 1.5 times? the upper limit of normal, and they've got abdominal pain. What are you thinking then? It's, it's important that clinicians recognize that um, a lot of people, especially diabetics, are walking around with naturally with amylase and lipases that are 1.5, sometimes 3 or 4 times the upper limit of normal. Um, so if they get abdominal pain from other reasons, such as a, a viral gastroenteritis, uh, an ulcer, even just gas pain, and you send off an amylase and lipase, it may be slightly elevated, and that has nothing to do with the presence of acute pancreatitis. And those patients, when you really have the suspicion that's acute pancreatitis, it's important to rely on imaging. Tell us about 
any recent advances in, in diagnosis or, or has there been any, apart from the ones you're mentioning? There's no advances in diagnostic testing. Um, the testing in most patients is quite obvious when a patient comes with acute pancreatitis. It's, it's in patients where it's equivocal. But despite numerous tests, uh, urinary trypsinogen, urinary amylase, uh, um, there really hasn't been any change in the diagnostic testing on, uh, for the diagnosis initially. Okay, thank you. What would you say are the common pitfalls in diagnosis? Um, in patients who have um, post-ERCP pancreatitis, um, the, the diagnosis, there's sort of an underdiagnosis and overdiagnosis problem. Um, a lot of patients after an ERCP just have abdominal pain just because of the gas that's insufflated. And the amylase can be very high, three or four times up below normal, sometimes in the thousand range, and the patient does not have pancreatitis. It's just from manipulating the ducts. So there's a bit of an overdiagnosis. And also in patients who have ERC pancreatitis, there's an underdiagnosis because if patients have a small bellyache after the procedure, very often the clinician thinks this is just related to the ERCP and um, doesn't send off an amylase in my case because they know it could be wrong. And those patients, imaging should be performed before they let go from uh, where the ERCP was performed. Um, I think the other problem is there's an overdiagnosis in general because patients come to the emergency room and they have abdominal pain. And then you find these patients, especially diabetics who have lipases of five times normal. In these patients, you'd sit there and say, well, the diagnosis is established by two of three criteria and they're told they have acute pancreatitis. And these patients, you really need to get imaging because typically the amylase and lipase would be very high, again, in the thousands. That, that's, that's really helpful on, on diagnosis. And one last question on diagnosis. What's a, what would you say would be the top two or three differential diagnosis um, for, for acute pancreatitis? Well, since the pain is so severe and it's associated with nausea and vomiting and it's in the epigastric region, you would think of diseases that would cause pain in the epigastric region with nausea and vomiting. So peptic ulcer disease, especially a perforating ulcer, um, biliary colic uh, or cholecystitis, it would be in the epigastric region. And perhaps the most common diagnosis, just a, acute gastroenteritis, meaning a viral enteritis, food like food poisoning. Okay, thank you. And and what about myocardial infarction? You used to read that in textbooks in the past. Is, can that be a potential differential? Yes, uh, an inferior infarcts uh, can give you epigastric pain. Uh, in those patients, um, the pain would be out of proportion to the physical exam. So unlike cholecystitis or a perforated ulcer, uh, pancreatitis, they would all have epigastric tenderness. Uh, in the patient who's got an inferior MI, causing epigastric pain, they wouldn't be tender, or typically wouldn't be that tender. Okay, thank you. Let's move on to management. What would you say are the, the mainstays of management of this condition? Um, well, the first thing in management is um, it, it, uh, intravenous aggressive hydration. Um, and also, I take a step back looking at the etiology, because in a patient who has gallstone pancreatitis, the fear is that there'll be a stone in the duct. And if that stone is missed and the patient develops biliary sepsis, which could look a lot like the pain, fever, tachycardia that you would just get from acute pancreatitis, um, you would be missing the opportunity to perform an early ERCP. So you want to entertain what the etiology is, um, specifically focusing on gallstone pancreatitis. 
And then when it comes to um, uh, treatment, early aggressive intravenous hydration. Um, although there appears to have been some controversy, it's not a controversy in initially at, in the first six to 12 hours. We all agree that aggressive hydration on, on admission the first six to 12 hours, unfortunately, it's typically in the emergency room, how paramount that is. What about pain relief? The treatment of pancreatitis um, regarding pain relief hasn't been very well studied. Um, it's hard to enroll patients in, in trials. Uh, but the goal is to treat the pain. Almost all patients who have acute pancreatitis describe the pain as severe. Uh, and clinicians should treat it the same way they would treat anybody who has severe pain. Uh, and the, historically, there was a fear of giving morphine that it might um, spasm the sphincter. That's not true. You can give any pain medication. We try to avoid NSAIDs because of the risk of bleeding. Um, typically, patients with acute pancreatitis need narcotics. And there's always this fear that when you give narcotics, you're going to cause hypotension, um, respiratory depression. Uh, it's something you wouldn't want to give somebody who may be developing biliary sepsis or, quote unquote, pancreatic sepsis. It's, uh, but it, all patients who have acute pancreatitis describe the pain as very severe and undertreated. They say that they were writhing in pain in the emergency room. It's very rare that a patient will say, oh, it wasn't that bad. What about anti-hematics? Do you give antimatics? You can, uh, yeah, it, it, it's symptomatically. If there's a if there's a symptomatic need, you might you might do. Yes. And and what about antibiotics for uncomplicated patient with uncomplicated acute pancreatitis? Would they require antibiotics? So antibiotics are typically overused in acute pancreatitis early on. Um, patients present um, looking as if they have an infection. Their white blood cell count is typically elevated. They're febrile. They're tachycardic. They're in pain. Uh, it sort of begs the clinician to consider infection, and you should consider infection. Uh, the clinician should work them up. They should get um, a chest X-ray. They should get a urine analysis. Um, some early studies actually showed that a lot of patients with acute pancreatitis who get septic actually get septic because of urinary sepsis. Uh, so culturing up the patient, and I'm going to leave it to the clinician of whether or not they want to start antibiotics um, because of the clinical scenario, but they should be aware that the vast majority of patients with acute pancreatitis do not need antibiotics, although they may appear as if they have an infection. It's merely the inflammation from the pancreatitis itself that's causing the fever, tachycardia, uh, elevated white blood cell count. And, and um, lastly, on, the, on these particular kind of types of treatments, oxygen, do patients need Ox oxygen always, sometimes? Routine use of oxygen is not needed. Um, if a patient starts to desaturate and needs oxygen, these patients need to be watched very carefully because uh, one of the uh, early complications that occurs is uh, the adult respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. Um, so if you start seeing that the patient needs oxygen and the saturation is dropping, those patients should be on a monitored bed. Okay, thank you. Moving on, particularly to gallstone um, pancreatitis, do, do patients, do all such patients need an ERCP? When would you do an ERCP? The vast majority of patients with gallstone pancreatitis do not need ERCPs because the stones will typically pass from the common bile duct where it had obstructed the pancreatic duct into the duodenum. Um, the patients who need uh, early ERCP are patients who developed uh, cholangitis, biliary sepsis, 
the, um, the benefit of the ERCP is not to relieve the pressure of the stone on the pancreatic duct, uh, which was once thought to be the beneficial effect. We're now very much aware of the fact that the, the purpose of the ERCP is to treat cholangitis the same way we would in a patient who did not have acute pancreatitis. So the indication for early ERCP within like the first 24 hours, the earlier the better, um, is the presence of biliary sepsis. So you're looking for the patient who's got acute pancreatitis and has an elevated bilirubin, elevated white blood cell count. Those are the patients that would need to get an early ERCP. Okay, thank you. And and just specifically on cholangitis, how, how would you diagnose cholangitis? It's the, it's the elevated white blood cell count with the elevated bilirubin. Alkaline phosphatase, the transaminase would be elevated. Um, ultrasound typically would show a dilated duct, but don't be fooled because it sometimes takes 24 hours for that duct to dilate on an ultrasound. So it's possible that um, you have a normal biliary tree on ultrasound, but the bilirubin is rising. And in the patient who looks septic, uh, tachycardic, hypotensive, febrile, whose bilirubin is three, four, five, those patients should undergo an early ERCP. Okay, thank you very much. That's, that's extremely clear. Um, any recent advances in, in management, I wonder? And we've learned that the earlier the ERCP is performed, it probably is more beneficial. Um, you're looking for patients who have severe disease. Uh, there are advances in um, uh, the performance of an ERCP, but I don't think that needs to be discussed uh, here. Okay, and, and I'm guessing that, 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 that it only applies to patients who really need an ERCP. Yes. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Um, any pitfalls in management? Um, the number one pitfall in the management of acute pancreatitis is failing to remember that a patient with mild disease does not have mild disease for the first 48 hours. So even the Ransom score historically, the Apache scoring system, no scoring system is accurate the first 24 to 48 hours. Uh, the, you have to remember that the patients who crash, who later on have severe disease, necrotizing pancreatitis, organ failure, these patients, they could look perfectly fine the first 24 to 48 hours. So what happens is clinicians are thrown off because most patients with acute pancreatitis have mild disease. So they've had multiple admissions with pancreatitis, patients with pancreatitis. They did well with some hydration, went home a few days later. And then they get the patient who looks just like those other patients but 24 hours later, now is entering into multi-system organ failure. So you have to keep a good eye on the patients the first 24 to 48 hours, remembering that there's no diagnosis of mild acute pancreatitis in the first 24 to 48 hours. You have to wait to that 48-hour mark, and then if the patient's improving, then you can pretty much be assured that this was mild disease. Okay, thank you. What other questions do you get asked about this illness? What, what if anything... Have we missed, I wonder? The disease is best thought of as um, um, two steps. The first step um, is uh, an acute systemic inflammatory uh, release of pancreatic enzymes. And then um, most patients, 75 to 80% of patients will improve, um, hopefully with aggressive hydration and close monitoring. And um, uh, then they get discharged, to hopefully to prevent a recurrent attack with whatever the etiology was. 
The second part of the disease is the uh, patients who do not improve, who develop uh, the organ failure um, uh, and this local complications such as necrosis. So um, once you get a patient who um, does not improve or uh, seems to develop an organ failure, at that point, that's when you need to have uh, intensive care unit consultation and or surgeons for the local complications. Um, the later complications of acute pancreatitis are best managed um, by, uh, a, a, with a multidisciplinary approach, uh, and it needs to be individualized. Okay, thank you. We're, we're flowing through it. We're doing so well. I'm going to ask you an extra question, Scott. Sorry about that. Um, at BMJ Best Practice, we're really interested in comorbidities, and in fact, we've added in, in certain territories a new comorbidities manager to, to the tool. And I'm wondering, say you had a patient with acute pancreatitis plus heart failure. What would you look out for, I wonder, or what? how might your management change in light of the heart failure? So when we predict um, which patients can develop complications from acute pancreatitis, we no longer use Apache, Ransom, those scoring systems, which weren't accurate for the first 24 to 48 hours anyway. We now look at uh, a, a variety of factors that could influence which patients are going to have severe uh, complications so we can um, get them into the intensive care unit or to a step-down monitored bed early because we can expect that they're going to have complications. Comorbidities is one of those factors, especially congestive heart failure or cardiac disease, because these patients, the number one treatment is going to be aggressive hydration. How do you aggressively uh, provide fluids, IV hydration, to perfuse the pancreas, to perfuse the kidneys in a patient who may develop worsening congestive heart failure? So that patient's going to need to be um, uh, closely monitored in an ICU setting or certainly a step-down bed monitored with cardiology hand-in-hand uh, -hand with you. I'll also add uh, other risk factors we know of on admission. Uh, obese patients, um, they're at a much higher risk of developing complications. Uh, patients who um, have elevated BUN uh, and um, uh, hematocrit, which are markers uh, that the patient is... Um, intravascularly volume depleted. So they're likely to not be perfusing their pancreas, not perfusing their kidneys, more likely to develop acute renal failure. Um, patients who come in who have uh, markings already on the chest x-ray, such as pleural effusions or infiltrates, because this may be a sign that uh, ARDS has already begun. Um, and certainly um, uh, patients who are older, um, patients who are older than 50, 55, are at a higher risk of complications than younger patients. Okay, thank you very much, Scott, uh, and, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope this has been helpful, and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you wish to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and have a look at the content on this and other diseases. Thank you once again. <laughs>